0: It's our great honor that we have with us today, um, as we did yesterday as well for a different event, uh, Professor Olivier Boulnois, who is uh, Director d'Etudes um, at the École de uh, Pratique des Hautes Etudes in Paris and also um, a professor at the uh, Institut Catholique in, in Paris as well. Um, professor Boulnois is a specialist of medieval Christian thought. Um, and uh, specifically of Don Scotus and of Augustine. Um, uh, I will just rehearse very briefly some of his many uh, uh, publications. Um, it's quite an impressive list. Um, Don Scott sur la connaissance de Dieu et uh, l'Université de, de l'Étrente by uh, Presse Universitaire de France, uh, 1988. Don Scott, uh, La rigueur uh, de la Charité, um, Paris Surf. Uh, 1998, uh, généalogie du sujet de Saint-Anselme à uh, Malbranche, um, Paris-Vran, 2007, and Au-delà de, uh, de l'image, uh, Paris Édition de Soy, 2008, for which uh, Professor Boulnois was awarded the grand prize uh, from the Académie Française. Um, more recently, Metaphysique Rebelle, Genèse et Structure d'une Science au Moyen-Age, from Presse Universitaire de France in t- 2013. We also are very fortunate to have with us today um, two respondents, two panelists, our own uh, Professor Wilhelmine Otten, Professor of Theology and uh, the History of Christian Thought, also Director of the Martin Marty Center for the Public Understanding of Religion, and Professor Jean-Luc Marion, Andrew Thomas Greeley and Grace uh, McNichols Greeley, Professor of Catholic Studies, Philosophy of Religion and Theology. My role in this event is to moderate. Um, That is, I will try to keep track of time. Um, So uh, uh, we will have uh, 45 minutes for um, the paper from um, Professor Boulnois. We will then move to uh, responses from Professor Otten and Professor Marion. And then we'll have um, some time left over for a question-and-answer period. So Professor Boulnois has uh, generously agreed to share with us a paper on the concept of freedom entitled What is Freedom? So please join me in welcoming Professor Boulnois.
1: You hear me well at the back? Yes. Yes, my title is What is freedom? Some reflections about Augustine. We have multiple and contradictory notions of freedom. Our most common representation describes it as the faculty of acting without hindrance. Freedom seems to be an ability to act spontaneously. For some, freedom means the ability to do what one wants and thus to choose a thing or its contrary. The essence of freedom lies then in free will, liberum arbitrium. According to others, freedom is the condition of responsibility. I must answer only for actions that that depend on me. According still to others, freedom consists in a resolute decision in favor of what appears to me good. And the free man is the one who can only do good. So much so that the dimension of choice seems to have disappeared. Ultimately, the moral free man would be determined to choose only what he sees fit. There is therefore a dialectical tension between freedom and free will between the evidence of good and the indifference of choice, between the power towards opposites and the power towards a single possibility. In order to explore this tension, I propose to organize it around four questions. One, is freedom the power to do what one wants? Two, is freedom the power to choose good or evil? Three does freedom lie in the indifference of choice or in the evidence of goodness? And four, and last, does the key to freedom lie in contingency or in necessity? I will examine not only Augustine, but a series of authors that depend on him, Aquinas Don Scotus Descartes. So my first point is the power to do what we want. For the ancients, Freedom did not mean an inner, invisible property of the self, but a social situation. A man who is not a slave is free. Freedom was equated with the right to live a happy life in a political society. According to this, a first approach of freedom would be to define it as the ability to live as we want. I think that it remains a common representation of freedom, for most of us, to be free is, is to be able to do what we want. But this is the Sophistic representation of freedom, which implies that all kinds of actions, all ways of life are morally equal. It is, for example, the definition given by the Sophist Polos in the Gorgias. Polos praises the prosperity of rhetors and tyrants. So do they do not they do what they want? The powerful are free because they can do what they want. In the Lysis, Socrates asks to the child Lysis why he cannot drive his father's chariot. Socrates raises two questions. First, I quote, according to you, is he happy? a man reduced to slavery if he is not allowed to do anything he desired. Plato criticizes here our first definition of freedom, mirroring the social definition of slavery. The free man acts without hindrance. Freedom and happiness as consisting in doing what one wants. But his spokesman, Socrates, insists insists on the irony of Lysis as a child. He's supposed to be free, but it is a slave who leads his chariot, and even his mother does not let him touch her spindles. This leads us to the second question. I quote, they want to see you perfectly happy, and they prevent you from doing what you want. So the political dimension of freedom and slavery is still in the background of Plato's reflection. But it is reversed by his irony. This son of a free man is a slave, and his slave is freer than he is. The motive and the key of his slavery appear soon, and they indicate how to get rid of it. There are many things he does not know, and it is in the field he knows that he can do what he wants. He will drive the chariot when he shall know how to, ra- how to drive. So for Plato, only the one who knows can be free. Therefore, the key to real freedom is science. In order to be free, to do what we want, Hoti and Bulometa, we must become wise. This is how we will be free. And it's uh, in the too. Uh, and. He adds, in the areas where we have become wise, we will do what we want. Lysis two hundred and ten AB. Hence, the sophistic definition of freedom is only a formal definition, a blind evidence, an empty tautology ca- that can be filled with anything. The problem is what content do we give to this form? And for Plato, the truth of freedom is wisdom. Man must therefore learn to discern the good good they they seek. Hence, for Plato, the key to freedom is contemplation of truth. But the limit of of his answer is precisely here. How can we act according to something we contemplate? How can we settle our action to a theory? Plato does not tell us. He neglects the proper logic of action. He ignores the autonomy of praxis. Surprisingly, this formal definition of freedom, an ability to do what we want, is resumed by some great philosophers, and even the most ascetic of all, the the Stoics. The famous beginning of Epictetus' discourse 4 says, first first sentence, he is free who lives as he likes, who is not subject either to compulsion, to restraint, or to violence, whose pursuits are unhindered, his desires successful, his aversions unincurred. So a man's freedom is identified with the satisfaction of his desires, as an ability to enjoy without hindrance, and as an absence, an absence of constraints. But we are here precisely in the same paradox as in the Lysis, For Epictetus shows us a few lines below that neither birth nor nor social rank constitute freedom. No nobles can be born free and be slaves of pleasures that do not depend on them. While he himself, a former freed slave, remains free even when he is in the irons. Thus, the metaphor, becomes a concept. Freedom becomes a positive attribute, a metaphysical property that can be ascribed to each individual according to what depends on us. Hef hemin, to hef hemin. But the real problem remains, how can we get what we want? And the stoic answer is, by wanting only what is good and what depends on us. If we do not want what is beyond our means, we will be able to get it. And if it is good, we are sure to get what, it, what is good. It is precisely that that Cicero explains in his Hortentius, a text transmitted by Augustine. I quote Cicero, quoted by Augustine. <coughs> Here, not philosophers, but men who are well-versed um, in discussion Say that those who live as they want, qui vivant ut ipsi wellint, are happy. But it is wrong. In fact, to want what is not appropriate is what is most unfortunate in itself. And not getting what you want is less unfortunate than wanting to get what you should not. Indeed, the evil of the will, pravitas voluntatis, affects a man more than fortune does him good. So Cicero's knowledge of the beginnings of philosophy is here very accurate. These non-philosophers, well-versed in discussion, are clearly the sophists. Their formal definition of freedom leads us to a dilemma. Is it better to get what we want, even when it is not good, or to pursue goodness, even when we don't get it? Cicero. The Stoics and Augustine answer without any hesitation. Freedom to will is not good self, I'm sorry, is not goodness in itself. Therefore, it is better to will what is good, even if we do not get it, than to get what we want, even if it is evil. Happiness does not consist in obtaining what one wants, but in obtaining what is good and therefore in wanting it. Those who want evil, and have the power to do what they want, even become worse. The Augustinian answer to the question appears thus as a synthesis of Platonism and Stoicism. It's in the De Beata Vita after this quotation of Cicero. De Beata Vita 2.11. What then does a man have to get in order to be happy, said I? Augustine is um, Rehearsing what he had said, according to me, he has to get what we have when we want. They said it was obvious. It must therefore be, said I, so something which always remains and which does not depend on fortune and must not be subjected to any accident, casus, for all that is mortal and decaying cannot be obtained by us when we want it but, and as long as we want it. So according to Augustine's analysis, real freedom is happiness. And it is obtained when we wish only what is good, what depends on us, and what remains without decaying. Therefore, this permanent good is God. In order to get what we want, we should want only God. The platonic contemplation of science and ideas is superseded by the contemplation and love of God. Wisdom is now ordained towards a singular object. So I come to my second point, the ability to choose good or evil. In his researches on human freedom, Schelling defines freedom as the ability to choose good or evil. Das Vermögen des Guten und des Bösen. This looks like a classical definition of freedom. If freedom is a source of moral responsibility, it is responsible for our good and evil deeds. But if we have a closer look, we will remember that it is precisely the definition Pelagius proposed for freedom. Pelagius supported the idea that our freedom is an ability to do right or wrong. Possumus pecare et non pecare, it's in the De Natura. We can sin and not sin. We are created by God with this double-sided possibility to do right or wrong, to choose good or evil. And since it is in our nature, we cannot lose this innate ability. I quote Pilatus once more. But because the power not to sin does not depend on us, And even if we wanted not to be able not to sin, we could not be able not to sin. So according to Pelagius, even if we do wrong, we keep the power of acting rightly, because our double-sided freedom has been given to us by nature, and we cannot lose it. And as you know, Augustine will uh, defend the other idea, the other that we can lose this ability of choosing what is good. Because for Augustine, this is the wrong account of freedom. Freedom means, first and foremost, that we choose between different goods and act accordingly. The whole of our life is a pursuit of happiness. We cannot say that we can will happiness or not. The whole whole action of our life is the desire for the whole goodness. Therefore, our freedom is not double-sided bivalent free choice is our way to get what is good for us. I quote the De Naturae Gratia of Augustine uh, chapter 49 57. What, what would he think if someone else said because it depends on us not to want to fall in unhappiness, we can as well want it as not want it. And Augustine adds, nevertheless we cannot absolutely wanted. We cannot want to not to be happy. So our freedom is directed towards goodness, not towards good and evil. And if we choose evil, it is through a failure, by a lack of freedom. In this case, our freedom is a causa deficience, not a causa efficience. It is a lack of causality, not an efficient causality. Our freedom has destroyed itself and we become slaves of our bad choices. This is why we can speak of a divine freedom. God cannot sin. Therefore, God has not the ability to sin and not to sin. He has a one-sided freedom, which is the ability not to sin. This idea will remain the cornerstone of Anselm's de Libertate Arbitrii, the power to sin is neither freedom nor a part of freedom, says Anselm, it's uh, chapter one. According to Augustine, the key of our action is our free will, liberum arbitrium. If by it, I mean free will, I act badly, to whom should this evil be attributed is not to me. If not to me, excuse me. The problem is that of attributing moral predicates. How can we go back from good or bad actions to the self as good or bad? By focusing on what is in us the source of action, the will. If an action comes from the will, I can be praised or blamed for it. Hence, the will becomes the support for actions whose merit is attributed to me. For the whole history of metaphysics from now on, it founds the ethical identity of man. The will is superposed on the desire. It is our will that allows us to consent to it or not on the model of the stoic ascent. But why add a will to desire? Why is freedom assigned to the will? By associating free will, liberum arbitrium, and will, voluntas, Augustine succeeded in his synthesis between two traditions, the liberum arbitrium of the fathers and the metaphysical concept of voluntas. Therefore, free will is not primarily an ability to a good or an evil choice. It is the ability to choose between various goods which belongs to the will itself. The will desires goodness. I quote, it's in the De Sermone Domini in Monte. There is no will but in what is good, for when it is evil, and one speaks properly of covetousness, cupiditas, and not of will. So to do evil, to choose evil, is not a form of freedom, but a defect of freedom. Consequently, the capacity of evil acts flows from the will insofar as it can fail insofar as it is nothing, a want of will, but not of the will, insofar as it is without blemish." Even if this point is generally obliterated by translations, Augustine speaks of willing badly, male welli," and not of willing evil, malum welle. For him, the expression voluntas mali has no sense. A search in the library of Latin texts shows that the expression voluntas mali appears for the first time in an anonymous commentary of the ninth century. It is repeated by Abelard and then Thomas Aquinas. But even Aquinas says that the voluntas mali is not a first principle of action, since it is always a will for goodness diverted by passion or by bad habits. I quote, um, Aquinas, it's in the De Malo, Article three, um, 12 at five. In him who sins with, through weakness, the will for evil, voluntas mali, is not the first principle of sin, but it is caused by passion. But, he, but in him who sins maliciously, the will for evil is the first principle of sin, only because he is inclined by himself and his own habitus to the will for evil and not by an external principle. So it's the will which is diverted by passion or uh, obliterated by our habits. It's not the will in in itself. Moreover, we must remember that the term free in Augustine and Aquinas does not mean an absolute term but a relation, even if it is a negative one. To be free is to be loosened from, to be detached from, from something else. Freedom has no absolute meaning in itself. Augustine, uh, citing Paul, Romans 6.20, emphasizes that we may sometimes be, I quote, free from righteousness and slaves of sin, and sometimes free from, si- from sin and slaves of righteousness. So freedom is relative and changes its meaning according to the term to which it refers. As Pascal will say, man, I quote, is either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness, and therefore never free from either. So freedom is not neutral. It is not absolute independence. It is always mixed with detachment and attachment. The question is, where does our attachment go towards good or evil. For Augustine, the question is not, do we have a free will, a liberum arbitrium, since we are created with it? The question is, do we have a freedom, a libertas? That is, the power to enact what we want, for example, the power to love God. Pelagius and Augustine grant that grace is a gift of God. But for Pelagius, sin is only an evil use of free will. It does not diminish our free will nor our freedom. Hence, grace is reduced f- to the forgiveness of our evil deeds. On the contrary, Augustine takes literally St. Paul. I quote the write Grazia, quoting himself, Romans 7, 18. To will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So for Augustine, the will itself is corrupted by sin. It has become powerless. It needs grace to be itself, that is, to be a power. So grace gives the powerless will the power to act well. It renders its, its power to an important power, God is not only the one who orders man to act rightly. He is also the one who enables him to do so. Da quod iubes et iube quod wis is the motto of Augustine. Give what you order and order what you want. Therefore, grace gives us the ability to perform what we will when we will something good. It renders real the freedom of our will which is freedom for goodness. We cannot seek goodness if we are not attracted by grace. Augustine links grace to pleasure. Grace is an attraction. Grace makes us find pleasure in such or such action. That is why we will seek it and perform it freely. Taking this argument to the extreme, the virtuous man is truly free but his acts are almost necessary. Augustinian freedom looks akin to Aristotelian virtue. According to Aristotle, the virtuous person has the habit of doing good deeds. He possesses at the same time a right desire and a true reasoning. However, even if it is very rare, it remains possible for Aristotle that man loses such a virtue. Augustine and Aristotle agree on one point. Freedom is precisely not contingency. So I come to my third point, and difference. At the same time, in freedom there is always an element of choice. Is it the principal or the less important element? We know the famous analysis of Descartes in his fourth meditation for In order that I should be free, it is not necessary that I should be indifferent as to the choice of one or the others of two countries, etc. etc. The more freely, tanto liberius, the more freely do I choose and embrace it, the, the more I recognize it, the more freely I choose and embrace it. So, end of quotation. So, freedom is not only indifference. Understood as the ability to choose the contraries in utramque partem. It is also the movement through which I lean towards toward one or the other. This movement can be motivated by the evidence of the object or by the divine grace. It is nevertheless free. And the more it is caused by reason, the more it is free. So, Descartes distinguished clearly between a negative and a positive sense of freedom as indifference. The the negative sense of indifference is the situation of balance, when we are not inclined or imposed toward one object more than the other. The positive sense of indifference is the ability to determine oneself towards one side more than the other. It's uh, in the letter, I will quote the letter to Melon, 9 February 1645. It seems to me that the word indifference, when used properly, stands for the state will is is in when it isn't carried in any one direction by the person's knowledge of what is true and what is good. But there may be people who understand indifference in another sense, namely as a positive faculty or ability to choose to do X or not to do X, to affirm P or to deny it, I have not denied that the will has this faculty. So (coughs) Descartes admits that there is also a positive meaning of uh, freedom. The first indifference, a negative one, is the lowest degree of freedom, since it is not motivated by goodness. And goodness is the object of our choice. Here Descartes remains an Augustinian. But there is another meaning of indifference. It is the ability to determine oneself It is freedom as self-determination. And the second indifference, a positive one, is present in all forms of freedom, not only when the state of affairs is balanced, but even when we choose what appears to be best. It is a dynamic and spontaneous power, a property of the will. In which sense can we say that freedom is rooted in the indifference of the will? In order to understand that, we must go back to scholasticism. We have seen that for Aquinas, as for Augustine, the capacity to do wrong does not belong to the freedom of the will. It is, rather, a characteristic of the deficient will. So the essence of freedom, ratio libertatis, says Aquinas, is not the ability to do evil. But it is the ability, I I quote once more, to do this or not to do it, facere hoc, well non facere, or to do this or that, hoc, well allude. But Aquinas, more than Augustine, thinks in terms of consistent natures. Freedom is first and foremost an intrinsic and inalienable property of the will, the ability to do something or not to do it, the power of contradictories and to do one thing or another, the power of opposites, which is depicted by Aristotle in Metaphysics 9.5. So in the De Malo, question 6, he identifies the first with a freedom of exertion, exercitium actus, and the second with a freedom of determination, determinatio actus. So freedom of the will has two aspects. First, the ability of acting or not acting, and second, the ability of doing such and such, the power of contradictories, and the specification of our power. The first one, the triggering of action, comes from the will which moves itself. The second one, the determination of the kind of action, comes from the object represented to our intellect. There is a double meaning of indifference, the indifference of acting or not acting, the indifference to doing this or that. Once we agree that we have active powers for Aquinas, he says that the whole concept of freedom, ratio libertatis, depends on the mode of our knowledge. Animals, of course, have different behaviors, but they do not have the freedom because they do not rise up to the consideration of the absent contradictories. So animals have a certain indifference in their actions, but they do not have a real freedom. On the contrary, man who accesses through language to the universal concept of goodness can refer particular goods to it. Hence, he can judge otherwise than he does, and therefore he can base his indifference on a rational alternative. It is what Aristotle described in Metaphysics 9 as a power capable of the contradictories. What is the root of freedom? Aquinas conceives this root in a way that articulates two aspects. One, the root of freedom is the will as a subject, but as a cause, but two, as a cause, it has it is reason. So the subject of freedom is the will as an ability to choose, uh, free will, but it is rooted in reason, which is the faculty of rep- representing the contraries. So man is free because he is rational. It is the representation of the contraries that that grounds the uh, contingency of our action. The expression indifference of the will is attested already in the middle uh, um, of the 13th century in the pseudo-Roger Bacon. But even in uh, Thomas Aquinas, there is a concept of indifference. Since we can represent a multiplicity of particular actions as falling under the aim we pursue, our reason represents indifferently many courses of action. I quote Uh, De Malo, question six. The form which is thought is universal, and under it a multiplicity can be understood. Therefore, since acts are singular, and no universal power is adequate to them, The inclination of the will indeterminately uh, relates to this multiplicity. So there is uh, an indetermination of the will because the will relates indifferently to a multiplicity of uh, actions. For the same goal, we may choose many actions. Thus, the will is not determined to a single operation, but it refers indifferently to all. Besides, Thomas maintains that the will is a desire for the apparent good. Therefore, its object is the good. It implies thus only an indifference between various goods. Can it be indifference between good and evil? Thomas, once but only once, seems to suggest it. He says, it's in um, Summa Theologiae 1, Question 83, Article 2. Free will refers indifferently to the acts of choosing well or badly. But we must remember the context of this sentence. It is in a place where he wants to show why free will is a power and not an habitus. (coughs) The The ambivalence of free will rests on the definition of a rational power as able of receiving contrary dispositions, contrary habitus. But this does not mean that free will by itself is indifferent to good and evil. It's the bad habit or a good habit that transforms it into uh, good or bad so, uh, will. So that's why we can speak of indifference. On the other hand, in the light of the evidence of goodness, Thomas maintains that we have freedom without indifference. The love of God for justice, the love of the blessed to, for the infinite goodness of God, The natural desire of man for happiness are free, but they necessarily lead us and we have no hold on them. And if we have the ability to do right or wrong, it is not part of the essential definition of free will. So the more our will adheres to goodness, the more our freedom grows. Aquinas agrees with Augustine. There is, uh, he quotes Augustine, uh, Epistula 127, there is a happy necessity that compels us to do what is best. To will necessarily does not diminish the freedom of our will. Our freedom is not hindered by the restriction of our choice. As Augustine, Aquinas maintains that perfect freedom is unable to, do to will evil. Where free will is most perfect, It cannot aim towards evil. Thomas remains an Augustinian. We cannot consider free will as a neutral power. To choose evil is to lose the freedom of the will. In every act of freedom, the agent seeks what seems to him best in these particular circumstances. I quote uh, Aquinas, true freedom is freedom from sin, libertas a peccato, That is why there is no opposition between free will and grace. The orientation towards goodness is confirmed by grace. Our free will can be confirmed in goodness that is necessitated through grace. The paradox paradox is that freedom of the contraries is not freedom towards good and evil. I come to my last point, contingency. With Aquinas' analysis of freedom, we understand why Descartes can describe negative freedom as freedom of indifference, but we must understand that there is another meaning of freedom, a positive one linked to contingency. Following the Aristotelian treatise on the interpretation, Aquinas distinguishes two degrees of contingency, physical contingency in which events are not necessarily determined in their causes, but occur most often, most often, and those whose causes relate indifferently to one or the other party, ad utrum libet. This category includes particularly the events that depend on free will. So, contingency of action rests on the indifference of the will. But does every act of free will involve a form of contingency? If free will were defined in a libertarian sense as a contingent power in itself, as a spiritual power of self-determination, or an ability to will and not to will independently of the state of causes, it would not be possible to consider only one of of its acts as determined by causes. But precisely, for Aquinas, contingency is not a universal property of the will. There are many cases where our choices and actions are necessary, as we have seen. For Aquinas, it is clear that the will obeys a form of necessity since it necessarily wants what appears to us as good. I quote um, the De Veritate. The natural necessity according to which the will is said to want something necessarily, for example, bliss, does not contradict the freedom of the will as Augustine teaches. This is why the will freely desires bliss, even if it necessarily desires it. And so it is that God also loves, him, loves himself by his will freely, even if he necessarily loves himself. End of quotation. No, I'm sorry, it was De Potencia, question 10. Thomas thinks of action on the model of the Aristotelian theory of motion. If a stone falls on free fall, in free fall, it is because its natural movement is not prevented. A spontaneous movement is therefore free and not constrained, but it may be necessary. It is through this power that we necessarily seek what appears to us as good. In this case, our will is determined to to choose it. But we keep the freedom of exertion, of acting or not. Since Henry of Ghent, one generation later, freedom of determination is called freedom of the contraries. We want something or its contrary while freedom of exertion is called freedom of the contradictories. Acting or not acting are contradictories. A turning point towards neutral contingency of the will appears with duns Scotus. It is based on three fundamental theses. One, the principle, I quote, whatever is moved is moved by another, Aristotelian principle, is only valid for natures. But the will is not a nature, and it is self-propelled. It is independent of any external determination, therefore autonomous and self-determined. Second principle, it is the will, not the intellect, which is the rational power, that is, which is the power of contradictories. So freedom needs not to be rooted in reason. Three. The distinction between nature and will rests on the different ways of producing alithyre their operation. Within this framework, we can explain how the will is the origin of contingency. We must distinguish three components within, within its freedom. First, the will is free towards its opposite acts. It is a rational power able to will or to reject. So, this is the freedom uh, towards contraries. By these opposite acts, it is free to turn to opposite objects, it is able to want white or black. The third element is the freedom to produce opposite effects. The first concept of freedom, freedom towards our acts, is imperfect because it implies uh, mutability in us. The second, to change our will, the second concept of freedom freedom towards objects, does not imply an imperfection. On the contrary, it is necessary to perfection, for every power tends nat- naturally towards all its objects. God's freedom is perfect and, aim- e- and aiming towards all objects. The third kind of freedom corresponds to what Occam will call efficient will. It produces real effects in the world. A threshold has been crossed. Thomas used to consider indetermination of the will as an imperfection at least in its ability to, to choose between evil and good. For Scotus too, the first indifference of the will, its freedom towards contradictories, arises from an imperfection of the will. The proof is that the divine will does not pass from one act to its contradictory. But Scotus adds one layer. There is a second indifference of the will, that the will may desire opposites, such as as white and black is part of its perfection. So the divine will has the freedom by a single infinite act of willing opposite objects. The freedom towards contraries has become a perfection. So beside its negative meaning, indifference of the will has received a positive meaning. It is part of the imminent perfection of the act of willing. That is why even the love of the blessed or the will for goodness um, uh, are contingent. Moreover, the will is the source of all contingency. Contingency among creatures comes from the divine will and contingency in human affairs comes from the human, human will. Our human will is finite, and it wants, in a contingent way, its sense. The abstract concept of goodness, as well as God, seen through beatific vision. Although the traditional position consists in saying that the beatific enjoyment is free but necessary, duns Scotus argues that it is both free and contingent. Human will always act in a contingent way. This raises the question of the, grounding, of the grounding of contingency in the will. Are we free not to want what we want? Can the will at the same time will X and not will X? Or will X and will the contrary of, of X? Aristotle uh, 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 said that uh, the rational powers are powers of opposites. But it is impossible that the opposites are present at the same time. Therefore, a rational power can realize successively, only successively, the contraries. Is it the case for Scotus? Uh, how does contingency come to the will? First, there is what Simon Knutler has called a diachronic contingency. The will can aim successively at opposite objects, but this contingency. Uh, implies for the will a mutability and an imperfection. Yet, there is a second kind of contingency, no longer temporal, but logical. We speak of a logical power when some terms are possible and compatible with one another. For example, out of world and time, it is true that the world may be and that the world may not be. So it is a synchronic contingency. The two opposites are logically possible at the same moment. This synchronic contingency characterizes the will. In the same moment when the act has an act of willing, it can have the opposite act of willing. Scotus has just established it. Possibility is independent of actual reality as of temporality. An experimental thought proves it. We can imagine a will to be created only for an instant. This instantaneous will cannot will and reject in succession, but in order for it to be truly free precisely in the instant when it wills X, it must, it's it's true that it can nil or reject X. It can therefore at the same time will X and not will X. So, when the will wills, unlike all natural causes, it produces its effect contingently not necessarily. So, Donscotus rejects the Aristotelian principle of the necessity of the present. In the De Interpretatione, when what is, what it is, is necessary. In the case of the will, even the present is contingent. Peter of Hayy, a nominalist of the, of the end of the 14th century, takes stock of this history when he interprets a famous expression of Saint Bernard, freedom is necess- libertas a necessitate, the liberation from necessity. This liberation is a liberation from determinism, Determinism, sorry, which is equated with the power to act contingently. In its turn, freedom of contingency is subdivided in, into two, freedom of contradiction and freedom of indifference. Freedom of contradiction, libertas contradictionis, is the intrinsic dimension of freedom implement, implemented by Don Scotus, its ability to act or not to act contingently at the same time. This is what Descartes calls positive indifference. According to Peter of Hayy, freedom of indifference implies an additional character. a will is so indifferent that it is no more inclined to, on part of the, to one part of the contradiction than to the other. It indicates a perfect balance between two opposing desires. This is what Descartes interprets as negative indifference. So positive freedom of contradiction is a metaphysical power identical with the will, while negative freedom of indifference is a state which depends on the external world. At this stage of reflection, the modern concept of freedom of indifference is already built. This concept implies, one, an absence of constraint, two, an ability to decide whether to act or not, freedom of contradictories, three, a balanced situation. But the second moment is more fundamental than the third because our will is the power of contradictories. It can always be self-determined, even when we are um, not in a situation of balance. And reciprocally, If we have the power to determine ourselves against our habitus, we can determine ourselves in a state of perfect balance. I come to my conclusion. What is the essence of freedom? To summarize what we have seen, freedom is crossed by a contradiction between two dimensions, freedom to do what we want and freedom to want what seems good for us. There is an element of self-determination as well as a desire for goodness. Therefore, we have the power to choose what appears to us as better or or what appears as less good, and which will reveal itself to be wrong. But in an Augustinian tradition, this freedom of the contraries does not mean that our freedom is the ability to do right and wrong. The ability of doing wrong is not the essence of freedom. It is a manner to lose our freedom. It is a byproduct, but it is not freedom itself. In our free will, the ability to choose good comes from freedom, and the ability to choose evil comes from a lack of freedom, as Augustine and Aquinas um, admit. The double meaning of indifference is linked to this tension. There is a negative freedom of indifference unmotivated by goodness or motivated by a balance between equal goods. But even in front of equal goods, we have the ability to choose, which means that our free will is an active positive power able to act or not to act by itself. It has a freedom of contradiction. And this power remains directed towards goodness. As Descartes stated, when no other goodness can motivate it, the will chooses because it is good for it to choose. In a word, freedom is the ability to choose among finite and contrary goods. Therefore, we, must, we may extend the span of freedom up to a radical indifference between contradictories, as the Scotus did, and in this case, it is the source of contingency. But at the same time, our ability to choose is our way to attain supreme goodness. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you uh, very much, uh, Professor Bournois, for your um, clear comments and your well-chosen title, What is Freedom? Some Reflections Around Augustine. You began by defining freedom as the faculty of acting without hindrance. Uh, I was not sure whether to see freedom as faculty, but later you call it an ability to act spontaneously that I can better understand and and, um, found very, very helpful. Then there were four points or angles of approach that that you chose to to organize your talk. And let me briefly mention them here and, and recapitulate. Is freedom the power to do what one wants? The first point. Is freedom the power to choose good or evil? As your second point does freedom lie in the indifference of choice or in the evidence of goodness, the third point, and finally, does the key to freedom lie in contingency or necessity? I will in my remarks comment on points one, two, and four, and make some comments along the way um, on how I see Augustine feature in in this uh, series. So the first point, is freedom the power to do what one wants? In that uh, section of your paper, you led us on a tour d'horizon through Plato's various positions and you give us the Augustinian answer as what you see uh, as a synthesis of Platonism and Stoicism from De Beata Vita 2.11. And let me quote what then does a man have to get in order to be happy said I according to me he has to get what we have when we want it must therefore be something which always remains and which does not depend on fortune and must not be subjected to any accident for all that is mortal and decaying cannot be obtained by us when we want it and as long as we want it." End of quote. So you conclude here, putting Augustine by, uh, by putting Augustine in the eudaimonistic tradition, and identifying that tradition with the Christian God, for Augustine at least. Real freedom is happiness, and it is obtained when we wish only what is good, what depends on us, and what remains without decaying this permanent good is God. As you state, the platonic contemplation of science and ideas is superseded by the love of God. Wisdom is now ordained towards a precise object. Approaching this from a theological rather than a philosophical perspective, my question would be whether freedom then, so defined by Augustine, can ever be attained in this life since love as opposed to faith and hope as the three theological virtues um, and I'm referencing here Augustine in soliloquies only increases in the afterlife which leads us to believe that it can only really be attained in the afterlife so that would be a question I have is to what extent can freedom be attained in in this life. Let me now go to the second point is freedom the power to choose good or evil Um, So is freedom the ability to do good or evil, right or wrong, for which you cite Schelling's das vermögen des guten und des bösen? Despite the impression that this view opens up freedom as a source of moral responsibility, you warn us for the pitfalls by seeing this as a Pelagian rather than an Augustinian view. We can sin and not sin. For Pelagius, that double-sided freedom Is in our nature and hence we keep the power of acting rightly even if we do wrong. Against what you call this bivalent or double-sided freedom you put Augustine's freedom as one for good and describe free choice as our way to get what is good for us. Freedom is directed towards goodness not towards good and evil. And if we choose evil, it is through a failure, by a lack of freedom, with freedom as a causa deficiens rather than a causa efficiens. Our freedom has destroyed itself in the latter case, and we become slaves of our bad choice. The exclusivity of freedom's direction towards goodness allows for its alignment with divine freedom. God has only the ability not to sin, and you quoted Anselm for that. While I would on the whole agree with the philosophical tenor of your arguments, given that Augustine inhabited a scriptural world, he also had to contend with texts that were not so clear cut, or rather than than, than that, were clear cut in another direction. And let me quote here from Deuteronomy 30. Uh, where there is a sense that God sets out good and evil. It's one of my favorite texts, so I I, I couldn't help but reading your text and and this would um, come to haunt me. So if you shall hearken unto the voice of the Lord, I'm now quoting Deuteronomy 30, um, uh, 10, to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law, and if you turn unto the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment which I command you this day, it is not hidden from you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who shall go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. See, I have set before you this day life and good, and death and evil. In that I command you this day to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgment, that you may live and multiply, AND THE LORD YOUR GOD SHALL BLESS YOU IN THE LAND WHETHER YOU GO TO POSSESS IT. BUT IF YOUR HEART TURN AWAY SO THAT YOU WILL NOT HEAR BUT SHALL BE DRAWN AWAY AND WORSHIP OTHER GODS AND SERVE THEM, I DENOUNCE UNTO YOU THIS DAY THAT YOU SHALL SURELY PERISH AND YOU SHALL NOT PROLONG YOUR DAYS UPON THE LAND WHETHER YOU pass us OVER JORDAN TO GO TO POSSESS it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both you and your seed may live." I'm also interested, actually as I was just reading it, um, in in the importance of, of the heart that comes up here. Um, I can now, but if your heart turns away, so I think in Augustine it it, it is not just uh, uh, something of the the monolithic choice of the will towards the good, but of course there's the Pauline, the vision of the will, but there's also the heart that that takes a a, a somewhat non, or or throws a somewhat non-philosophical dimension into into, um, your argument. So while I agree with you, going back from Deuteronomy now to your text, uh, with your synthesis that freedom is assigned to the will and that Augustine connected the librium arbitrium of the fathers, as you said, with a metaphysical concept of will or voluntas, the harmony is not always so harmonious, as I was just trying to say, if scriptural texts throw a wrench into it. Or even Augustine's reflection on the devil, that he was fallen, for otherwise he could not choose evil. Does that not at least suggest that humanity may not be so godlike through and through, and have the ability, and unfortunately at times also capitalize on this ability, to choose evil? At this point you make a few interesting comments on the Latin and being involved in a seminar on the confessions uh, at this point right now. I recognize indeed some of this that Augustine uh, speaks about willing badly, male vele, which I found a a difficult concept at first to uh, conceive. And not speaks of uh, willing bad things, malum vele, um, which, which all underscores your point. I do. I do not have a problem also with making a connection with Aquinas, but I do think that um, you are not correct, if I may say so, in quoting Abelard here, because Abelard doesn't really talk about voluntas mali, uh, which Aquinas uh, does mention, and which you explained as a will towards evil, but. Um, arguing that Aquinas does not see it as the first principle of action since it's always a will for goodness diverted by passion. Um, Abelar however does not talk about Voluntas Mali in that sense foreshadowing uh, Aquinas which he does in other respects actually uh, precisely in terms of ethics but um, he talks about Voluntas Mali operis, so the will to do a bad deed Um, and actually Let me read what he he says here um, from um, um, his Ethics 1.9. But perhaps you will say, this is Abelard, that willing a bad deed is also a sin. It renders us guilty before God, just as willing a good deed makes us just. As a result, in the same way as there is virtue in a good will, so there is sin in a bad will. And there is sin not only in non-being, but also in being, just as with virtue. For just as by willing to do what we believe pleases God, we do please him. So by willing to do what we believe displeases God, we do displease him and appear to affront or scorn him. What I think Abelar is doing here, and, and in ethics more broadly, is that he's not really talking about a will towards evil. Uh, He's very concerned to separate really the willing of a bad deed from sin because sin for him involves intention and a desire to scorn God as this translation has it or the desire to insult God. Hence, he can make the distinction that the Jews killing of Christ was indeed a bad deed. But for him, it was not a sin, since they did not intend to scorn God, right? So I think Abelard is a little bit of a different situation than going straight from, uh, than being a a station on the way to Aquinas. I think he has a a different um, situation. Also on the notion, actually, of divine willing. Um, And I wanted to read another passage here from, Um, uh, Abelar, where he talks about different modes of divine willing. Um, And this, let me just find it, is from um, Theologia Scolarium 324, where Abelar states that one can speak about God's will in two ways. In two ways can it be said that God wants, and I quote here. One way is according to the arrangement of his providence, according to which he disposes something by himself and deliberates and decides in his providence so as to fulfill it afterwards. The second is according to the exhortation or approbation of his advice by which he admonishes everybody to this thing for which he's ready to reward them through grace. So he counsels every man about his salvation and exhorts him to it, although few obey. So Abelard seems to think that God, on the one hand, has this providential plan, and on the other hand, is notching people on by sort of counseling to do uh, good things. But it, it makes the divine will less monolithic in, in Abelard um, than it may be in, in uh, Aquinas. But back to Augustine, uh, da quod iubis and iubiquod vis, give what you command and command what you will. I see how this is linked to freedom for goodness, but back to Deuteronomy, how can we rule out from the divine side that this is not a predestinarian choice along the lines of Paul's Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Um, I I think that the alignment of the human will and the divine will uh, in a way uh, also expressed by Abelard in in the the lairdness of divine willing but uh, in Augustine certainly in the insistence on on the Pauline um, notions is is problematic and I'm not so sure that it can that simply be solved. I'm not sure then to say that um, Augustinian freedom for me looks akin to Aristotelian virtue. In fact, Augustine's idea is that we can still get wrapped up in distractions even after his conversion and his baptism. Um, He he says at one stage how he still likes to see a lizard catch uh, flies or how in the field he likes to see a hare go after lizards or something, and in that sense gets wrapped up in, in, in the thrust of concupiscence, if you will. And it makes me worried, um, and that's the point I wanted to make, that grace is not a panacea for Augustine in that it inoculates him against any kind of relapse. His is not an ethics that believes in the perfectibility of, of habit. So then, finally, a few um, uh, comments—a short comments on the fourth point, um, which was: Does the key to freedom lie in contingency or necessity? Yes. So, skipping to the last point of contingency, I wanted to bring in an Anselmian distinction between um, what Anselm calls necessitas precedens, antecedent necessity. And and necessitas sequence, uh, necessity that follows, uh, which he uses in Cordeus Homo, Why God Becomes Man. Because basically um, Anselm argues that when Christ chose death, it was a voluntary choice and it was not imposed by God on him, right? And at the same time, because it's a divine choice, it's it's ruled by necessity. But Anselm calls that necessity sequence. It's the necessity that I speak because I'm speaking. So I'm not conditioned by having to respond that I speak. It's a free choice that I speak because I speak, right? Um, And my question, my final question to you is, to what extent would it be possible, also on an Augustinian viewpoint, to align freedom with necessity rather than contingency, as you do in in, towards the end of your talk, right? The latter, the the move towards contingency, and I'm not commenting on Duns, Codes, Descartes, etc., I see more as foreshadowing a modern phenomenological turn with respect for the event, the saturated phenomenon, and the like. But the Anselmian preference for Christ's voluntary obedience as an obedience towards death, cast as necessitas sequence has a monumental beauty to it, which I do not want to disaffiliate from or disqualify as an act of supreme freedom. And with that, I will end my comments.
3: I was indeed (coughs) very much um, impressed by the big uh, uh, picture which Olivier Boulnois has given us about the definition of freedom in the uh, uh, time after Augustine up to Descartes. I have learned a lot from it and also, uh, by contrast, I got, I think, a better understanding of what made uh, what made Augustine so uh, original, if we take into consideration the four first questions, uh, three of them insist and uh, the, div- the way you will answer to them. Uh, give a confirmation of that, insist on the, what I would say, call the epistemological interpretation of will, of, of freedom. That is, is freedom a power to choose good or evil? So, he two, uh, two uh, uh, beneficiaries, so to speak, of uh, liberty, free will, freedom. Two, does freedom lie in the Evidence of choice, indifference of choice of evidence of goodness, again is there two uh, theoretical possibilities and third question contingency or necessity. In fact, those three questions overlap to a large extent. uh, Freedom depends on what we know. We know for certain, we know for optional, but what we know. And the question is whether the more we know the more we are free or the more we know, the less we are free roughly speaking, those are the main questions and there is the first question the power of the is freedom a power to choose uh, is freedom a power to do w- what one wants so is freedom a power to choose what we know among the different options of what we know or is freedom the power to choose what we want That is uh, the power of the will and uh, to sum up uh, what I've learned from the presentation made by Olivier Boulnois the tendency in Medieval, during the medieval age was, and Thomas Aquinas again is crucial, was to insist on the epistemological determination of freedom. For instance, you quote, uh, I, I quote your quotations, so to speak, uh, uh, de veritate uh, totius libertatis radix est in ratione constitu- constituta. De uh, question, Veritate, uh, question twenty-four, article two. All the roots, the all rules of li- uh, the rules of all liberty, is established in reason, and you have also uh, this uh, very uh, strong uh, statement given by the uh, Summa Theologiae uh, prima pars, seconda pars, of the prima pars, question uh, fifteen. Article 1, the root of liberty is will, if you consider the subject, but it is ratio if you consider the cause, which is quite surprising. You could have said exactly the reverse. If you consider the cause of liberty, uh, the root is indeed will, and if you consider the subject of liberty, the content of liberty, it will be reason. It is a reason. The root as a cause is, uh, 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 is ratio, reason. And uh, in general, the question, the turning point, the, uh, crossing the th- uh, threshold, when uh, uh, they came to the conclusion that we are... More free in a situation of contingency. That is because we know less. Not everything is already necessary and decided, so we are more free. So the the freedom is really not only uh, in reverse proportion to what we know, but to some extent it is in the field and with the background of knowledge which you can describe freedom. And this is in fact quite surprising because uh, the, the initial starting point of Augustine is not his main concern about freedom, is not about what we know. It is about the fact that even when we know with the most the utmost uh, clarity what should be done because it is the highest good the perfect uh, object for beatitude even when we know that nevertheless we can make the wrong choice to will something else it is the famous doctrine of the causa uh, deficiens, and uh, let us quote uh, 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 the famous uh, uh, story of uh, the first uh, uh, sin committed by Mm -hmm. Augustine as told in Confession 2. So uh, when he he, he has stolen fruit and he says that in that case, it was not for the sake of that fruit (laughs) uh, that uh, he he committed the sin. He made the sin, uh, he says. Malicia meae causa nulla set nisi malicia. the wickedness, the cause of the cause of my wickedness was nothing but my wickedness. Foeda erat et amavi eam. It was horrible and I did love it. I loved to perish. I loved the my own uh, defect. I love what was a bad deed. And let us uh, remind us about the question I love my defect. Uh, and let us compare this to the contemporary, not medieval, but contemporary uh, view about liberty as, uh, 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 as it, it has achieved the decision made by. Uh, the last uh, medieval thinkers. Let us consider Kant, for instance. When Kant describes exactly the same situation as that of of, of, uh, described by Augustine in Confession 2, which is in fact a commentary on uh, Paul, uh, Epistle to the Roman 7, I see the best perfectly well, and I do the the opposite. And uh, when Kant describes this in uh, his description of radical evil in the uh, religion in Europe uh, within the limit of pure reason. He makes a distinction, which is very well known, the distinction about description of the so-called radical evil, and he says that in fact uh, we can describe the situation of uh, evil for men by making a distinction between the fact that we know what is good, and we do what is evil, this is the bezartigkeit, the viciosity of will. But our uh, evil does not go that far as to become bezheit, malicia. What would be malicia, Uh, I remember you that malicia is the very word used by Augustine, in book two yeah. it is the perversity the perversity uh, is would be i quote Kant to love evil for the sake of evil and Kant say, says that uh, no we, we we are wicked but not not to that point <laughs> we are we are uh, uh, evil but we are not perverted so we know very well that It is the good which should be loved. We do the opposite, okay? So this is evil. But it is not perversion. Perversion would be to love evil for itself. So we see that in Kant, the radical uh, evil is not very radical. It is not very radical because he keeps the rule that the question of liberty, good and evil, is about knowing. And he does not want to give the, to give up this principle that we know perfectly well where evil is, even if uh, we make a wrong choice. But Augustine says that I did love my malicia. So the description of this small thing uh, uh, s- uh, uh, um, to, uh, uh, to seal an apple or a pear, uh, 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 by Augustine, in fact, is more radical than the more radical evil uh, uh, deed uh, uh, as seen by, by Kant. What does that mean? That means that for Augustine, the point in freedom is not whether we know or not. It is the fact that even when we know clearly, we do the opposite because we love the opposite. So, it is freedom is a question of will and even more a question of love. And what is very surprising in all those uh, uh, discussions about freedom in the medievals uh, through a long, very long period is that the question of love is subordinated to the question of knowledge and in the modern much more and (laughs) more surprising that even the question of will is not explicitly related to the question of love. And if we go back to to Augustine we see the difference because why is there no uh, cause for evil deeds? because there are evil deeds who are seen as really evil. (laughs) I would say there are more evil described by Augustine than described by Kant. So, nevertheless, there is no cause. So there is a causa d'efficience. It is nothingness, which is, in fact, the cause, so to speak. But the point why is, again, why nothingness is powerful within the will, because the will is supposed to be uh, 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 an active uh, faculty. So why, <laughs> why s- imagine that the place where nothingness is working in the human being would be rather the will which is active and up to us in general, and not uh, uh, sensibility, uh, limitation of knowledge, uh, anything other, any other faculty. Why is it the active faculty, which is the place where, the, where nothingness uh, resurfaces most easily? That's the point. The answer is that, in fact, our will is not active most of the time, for Augustine. Our will is weak. and There is a radical weakness of the will, much more radical than in Davidson and others, a weakness of the will because I am unable to will. So this is, this is well, well described in, in Confessions 8.10 when he says, let uh, uh, come back to the delibero arbitrio, <laughs> uh, in fact, I am unable to will completely, plené. I, I imagine that I will, in fact, I will slightly and I have an hidden desire Unknown to me, or not, if known, not acknowledged clearly, which is my real desire, and so my will does not want to uh, uh, give up this other desire. So my will, my, I would say, my official will, my uh, the will in my clear consciousness, is not a, a full speed will. So this is a, this is the reason. There is an aggritude enemy, we a, a disease of the mind, which is the weakness of the will. So the point for, for Augustine is that if you want to increase your freedom, it is not about the condition of knowledge. You have to work. It is about the weakness or the. Uh, uh, sanity of your power to will. And then we find the real, uh, the real, uh, um, how to say that, the real, uh, uh, the core of the question of freedom, which is to have a strong will, a stronger will. And how is it possible to have stronger will? Uh, it is by loving, because the definition of the real will uh, the definition of love is that it is a strong will, vehementer, vehementer velle or vehementia uh, voluntatis. Uh, ve, uh, th- those, uh, this definition of a strong will it being equivalent to love, that is, there is no other way to have a greater will, a stronger will, that is, to reach a stronger freedom. Than to love in the case when we love what we will our will is stronger and we are more free so this is explained in de trinitate book 10 11 15 21 and there is a long tradition including uh, william of saint thierry de contemplando deo uh, section 18 or 6, or Speculum Filii, 14, where uh, the, the text is, is uh, I read, vehemensia voluntatis, amor dicitur. Or, nil aliud est amor, quam vehemens in bono voluntas. So, vehemens uh, voluntas, that is a, n- uh, powerful will, not a weak will, is the way, that is love, is the only way to increase our freedom. So, in that case, indeed, there is an epistemological dimension of uh, the question of freedom, but it is really uh, second to the main concern, which is to increase the power of willingness. And it is not by a lack of uh, contingency or a lack of uh, knowledge that we uh, have a limited freedom. It's because of a lack of caritas, of vehemence, voluntas. And I think this is uh, the contrast between uh, the doctrine of Augustine with some consequences in the... 12th century and uh, so, uh, and between this uh, origin and the tendency to over-intellectualize the question of freedom, making it uh, um, a result, so to speak, of uh, the debate about necessity, contingency, uh, and so on, which will lead to the conflict between liberty, freedom, and grace, indeed, is uh, very surprising. So uh, again, and thank you for this uh, demonstration, uh, all the medieval thinkers are not traditional.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much. I'd like to begin by by thanking Professor Wilma for this this wonderful and rich paper, and also our our panelists for their uh, quite intriguing responses. Um, I'd like to move now to the question-and-answer period uh, of our events, but not before offering Professor Villeneuve, perhaps, a chance to say a few words in response to the very rich uh, responses we've had already. So.
1: Uh, thank you for bo- both of you, and um, it's a sort of Diltai and moment, because Diltai says that to interpret somebody is to understand him better than him. He did so. What's that's happened to me? You have understood me better than I do. Um, so, um, for the, um, thank you for you, you are, your 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 uh, summary is very uh, clear and even clearer for me than I thought I could be. Um, you have your first question, uh, if I remember, is a very difficult one. To what extent can freedom be obtained in this life for Augustine? I mean, apparently it's it's not a complex problem if we speak in terms of analysis of the general uh, way um, uh, action uh, goes for Augustine. But the question is how, uh, for example, how can somebody who is uh, in a situation of Precisely what Jean-Luc Marion described. um, A lack of will. uh, A weakness of uh, the will. How can somebody who is is unable to act uh, rightly. Because he is unable to will what is good. So how does he get out of of this situation? And the answer is not by himself. It's only uh, through grace. Uh, that Augustine can find um, a solution. Uh, When man is unable to will what is good, there is no no sense telling him uh, well, you should will what is good, because precisely the man the the person is uh, unable to will what is good. The more uh, the the person uh, is addicted to something, the less you can say, well, it's only a matter of will. You understand the person is uh, completely, uh, um, uh, um, I would say, uh, addicted to something, and, she, and the person cannot get out of this situation. So uh, there is a, there is no philosophical. Uh, apparently, the first the first level of the answer is that there is no philosophical uh, way out of this situation. It is the answer is grace, but at the same time, Augustine is a very um, Precise and clever thinker. Uh, at the same time, Augustine is perfectly conscious that um, uh, it's not enough uh, to ask for grace. Uh, for, uh, there are very interesting texts. For example, sermons uh, of Eastern people were baptized during the, the, the night of Eastern, and and he said, it's not because you have received grace that. If you have a tendency to spirits, or if you have a tendency to something else, you will be cured today. So there is an, also a human part of the effort. So uh, Augustine is always more complex than we think. Uh, that's a, a general um, uh, point of view so uh, th- that would be an answer to to your question but uh, I, I i agree totally it's a very difficult question that deals with predestination original sin grace etc but i didn't deal with that but. and um, thank you very much for the um, uh the reference to abelard i i i only wanted to say that the expression voluntas mali does not appear for a certain time before a certain time, but uh, if in this case it does not mean that voluntas uh, mali, it's even more in my in in my sense. So, so thank you very much for the precision. Uh, what else? Uh, I don't know. Uh, now I I I will answer to Jean Luc Marion's uh, remarks. Um, uh, Maybe Kant is an Aristotelian in this situation, uh, when Kant says that we are evil, not perverted. We must remember that uh, in, the, uh, in the Nicomachean ethics, uh, Aristotle distinguishes between uh, what we w- would translate maybe as uh, weakness of the will, akrasia, uh, uh, which is the impossibility to do what is good even when one knows what is good. Um, and uh, so this is uh, exactly the situation uh, Augustine tries to uh, explain. And at the same time there are some uh, small passages where Augustine say, uh, where Aristotle says sorry, um, uh, uh, well my explanations uh, are not uh, convenient for bestiality, for people who are completely perverted. So there, there is this idea that uh, there is a, a sort of lower level of morality uh, that cannot be even uh, uh, explained and, and cannot be cured. That is a sort of a situation where man ceased, ceases to be a man. And uh, maybe it's something analogous we find in Kant. <coughs> And uh, I agree totally with uh, what, what you have said. That is, um, the paradox. The paradox for uh, Augustine is that Augustine is the man who has probably the first who has discovered uh, that uh, uh, our actions must be explained by uh, a power which is the source of all our actions in ourselves, which is free will. We, in English, you translate free will, but uh, there is no will in, in the Latin word. Uh, it's a libertas, uh, liberum arbitrium. There is nothing to do with will in, in Latin. So uh, we have a, a power that explains our actions, which is libertas arbitri, uh, free will. And uh, at the same time, so he's the first to discover that. And then he's also the first to discover that this power that is the source of all our actions uh, is uh, powerless. This power is important we uh, we should have this power of doing uh, all uh, good actions, but in fact uh, we are we are unable to that. And so it's very interesting that what Jean-Luc Marion called about Descartes a first beginning and a second beginning. We are we have here uh, um, Augustine, which, who discovers the first beginning. First beginning is the freedom of the will, and the second discovery of, of uh, Augustine is the. Uh, weakness of the will, so I, I agree totally with the, the idea that uh, the, the way out of this uh, uh, <coughs> of this sort of a trap or of this difficulty is uh, the question of love. It's clearly uh, clearly the vocabulary of the will in Augustine is always linked with the vocabulary of desire and love. So uh, we will. The more we will do good, the more we love it, the more we are free. I think this is the, 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 the way um, Augustine has discovered. Thank you very much.